welcome everybody to the latest edition of Media Sandwich, a podcast where uh, a guy sits and talks about pop culture, namely what's going on in the news, uh, pop culture wise, speaking about, you know, movies, video games, TV, comics, and more. And uh, who's that guy? That guy, he be me. My name is Kyle Martinak, and I am your Monday morning or rather Monday evening quarterback. Uh, for all of the stuff that has happened in pop culture in the last week. So let's get started really fast with a quick update. Update on something we talked about last week. Last week we touched on the Bayonetta 3 controversy. Uh, The whole bit about Helena Taylor, the voice of Bayonetta in the first two games, uh, claiming that Platinum Games was totally giving her the shaft pay-wise and also making her audition for the third game, as if she wasn't already the voice of Bayonetta. Well, that turned into a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, some some alleged... Uh, some alleged... Uh, 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 some alleged... How do we put this? <laughs> How do we put this? Some alleged uh, misnomers or uh, half-truths or possibly just plain untruths in her story... That some people are some people are uh, debating the veracity of her claims. I'm not going to do that because I don't know what the hell's going on. All I know is Platinum Games released a statement recently, the last couple of days, acknowledging the uh, voice acting controversy. And well, no, actually they didn't. They released a statement of full support to Jennifer Hale, the voice actress who has performed the voice of Bayonetta for this third game instead of Helena Taylor. Uh, Why does Jennifer Hale need a statement of full support? Well, I mean, come on. You know why. It's because video game fans, in a fit of reactionary bullshit, they saw the original actress had a dispute that ended with her being replaced, and uh, they decided to throw a bunch of hostile messages at the other professional who was brought in to replace her. So yeah, Jennifer Hale has reportedly been catching a bunch of shit for being hired to voice a video game character. How dare she? Her being a professional voice actor in the video game industry. What's pretty farcical about this, considering why there's a controversy at all, uh, Helena Taylor is a voice actor who, by the way, may or may not have been 100% accurate in her description of the situation last week. Regardless of all that, She was a voice actor who was likely treated poorly, and she spoke out. So a lot of fans are responding by treating another voice actor poorly. Great, grand, wonderful, no notes. (sighs) Hale, for her part, has been a consummate professional, honestly, in my opinion. She said basically in her, she made a statement saying, Hey, look, I understand people are upset, but uh, I, I just signed on to do a job. Also, I've signed an NDA, and I really can't talk about anything beyond the fact that I was excited to voice a character as cool as this one, and I hope people like my performance and and the game. And that's it. That's all she said. And I commend her for that statement. Uh, That's, honestly, it's all, it's more than people are really owed from her. She just happened to be in the bad situation of being hired to do a job when a lot of people were pissed off about the whole situation. I can't believe that people are coming. I can believe, but I'm appalled that people decided to throw their ire at her of all people. She followed her contract stipulations, gave a full-throated no comment, 
the way she should have. Platinum Games has bravely decided to agree with her on that. Their statement is essentially, we support Jennifer and we agree with her statements on the matters concerning Bayonetta 3. So yeah, essentially the developer is like, yeah, what she said, and what she said is no comment. So long story short, one voice actor may or may not have been treated like an unpaid intern after two previous outings as this character, made to audition again, given ridiculously low offers for her work, allegedly, allegedly. Uh, In response, always online social media gremlins hucked a lot of shitty feelings at another voice actor who committed the crime of taking the job when it was opened. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the game developer's official statement is basically a Homer Simpson. Mm-hmm. This is all going so great. I'm sure this game's going to have a terrific release. Uh, <laughs> anyway, next up in video game news, uh, there was a big moment this last week when Konami and Bloober team announced that Silent Hill 2 is getting a big splashy remake. That's all the video game industry is about these days is them big old AAA remakes. But this one is a real time warp for me. I have a very concrete memory of going into the local game crazy store, the same one where Chris Pranger worked, uh, although this was a few years before he did, and Silent Hill 2 was one of the PS2 demo machines. Like, that was what was not, not one of the kiosks that's like in the middle of the store where little kids can grab at it, but... It was, the screen was behind the counter and the controller was just like sitting on the glass counter, which I think might have indicated that the store employees were playing that uh, during downtime. That was probably what they were doing. But the controller was on the counter, so I just picked it up and I was absolutely mystified as to what the hell I was playing. I was a big fan of horror movies, but never really kept up with the state of horror games and never written. Even now, I haven't really in the last 20 years. I, I love Alien Isolation. And I love Dead Space, and those are, that's pretty much it for me. I haven't really played any other horror games. I'm not really a big Resident Evil fan, although I should probably dip my toe in that water. But I know enough to know that Silent Hill is a formative moment for a bunch of folks. And th- this is pretty big news, this remake. Now, naturally, being a remake of a game that far back, it's going to come with some updates to make it feel a little more modern, a little more enhanced. For starters, James is going to get an over-the-shoulder camera option to really enhance the, like, the claustrophobia and to help with a little bit of uh, overhauling the combat system. They they kind of went back in and fixed it for a more modern sensibility. Now, the really big takeaway for me is that they'll be using uh, Unreal Engine 5 along with the Lumen lighting system. If you don't know what that is, basically it's like, uh, like an environment like Silent Hill 2's like foggy, creepy little town setting, it's really important that uh, light plays, you know, it plays a part in the setting because there's so much shadow work and the fog is kind of obscuring everything in, in order to, you know, it, it's it's a great venue to use this system uh, because the environment tells so much of the story, basically. Lumen is going to help uh as it's at the moment it's like the best way to render how natural light behaves in games on next gen consoles i mean i don't know how it works i'm not uh smart i i'm not a smart man but i do know that that sounds like a really great way to enhance silent hill 2 for modern consoles and then you add to that 
There's the addition of a lot more uh, dynamic directional sound because it's a game where you hear a mysterious sound and you follow the sound. Now, uh, with with this new system that they're adding, there's going to be a lot more nuance as to where the sound is coming from so that you can follow it to, you know, whatever scary shit pops out at you. Uh, to and, and that dovetails with a lot more advanced haptic feedback in the controller. The PlayStation controllers these days, so much more advanced than the ones for the PS2. And they're using it. They're using the modern technology to enhance the remake of this 20-year-old game. And that's good. I think that's great. It's uh, I think it's going to make it very scary and immersive experience. Uh, and And they're even adding some motion capture sessions to bring out, like, very nuanced facial expressions for the characters that you encounter and stuff. Also very smart, very good way of using modern technology to enhance the experience. Me personally, I'm not really wild about the new culture of video games going like remake crazy. It's officially surpassed the movie industry at this point in terms of like how wild they've gone with, uh, oh, that game that's only 10 years old and still looks fantastic. Well, now we've decided to overhaul the graphics and make it look even better until we release a new console in like six years. And then we'll do it again and call that the ultimate edition so that there will be like three or four versions of the same game, you know, all over the place. Uh, that's kind of bullshit. <laughs> I'm kind of looking at you, The Last of Us. But uh, yeah. I don't, I don't really care for that, but bringing back games from my primo days of gaming in my bedroom from like age 12 to 17, naturally I'm a sucker for that sort of thing, and this kind of falls more into that. Like, they announced a GoldenEye remake, I'm like, yeah, totally, I'm in, that sounds great. They announced they want to do big HD remakes of the Max Payne games, the first two, I'm a happy guy, Those that would be great, I would, I would buy the hell out of that. And I think enough things are happening with this Silent 2 remake that warrant its existence, that warrants the exercise of updating it. I just wonder if maybe the sales of this remake, if they, if it justifies it, can they please move on and make a new game whole cloth for the franchise? Just tell a whole new story within Silent Hill. You know, let this, let this be the good faith purchase that tells them that we will purchase another one. That'd be great. I... Maybe it's just me. I've been watching a lot of slasher sequels lately, it being spooky season. And I gotta tell you, the idea of rehashing the same beats of a movie over and over for 20 years, it's not something the video game industry really needs. It's kind of already been a problem in video games for years and years, and it's becoming more pronounced. So that sort of thing is, it's kind of already built into games and sequels to those games. And Silent Hill 2, uh, yeah, I mean... It, it's it's a great game from back in the day. They're bringing it back. Hoorah. But give me a new game after this one, please. If this one sells well enough, can you follow through and give me a new Silent Hill? Not that it matters to me, because this one is coming out on the PS5 only. So that doesn't matter to me, because I can't afford nor find one of those things. And it's coming out sometime soonish. I don't think we got a date yet. I'm probably wrong about that, but I didn't see one. Anyway, next headline. Uh, the reviews are in for Gotham Knights, which came out this last Friday, the 21st, and they are not awesome. <laughs> um, that's really disappointing for me. I'm a big fan of the series, but I was already disappointed as the game is only coming out on, P on PC and next-gen consoles, so uh, that left me shit out of luck either way. But the consensus is 
This is the first game in the franchise since 2015's Arkham Knight, and it is pretty sloppy uh, uh, considering that. A lot of lot of reviews were actually comparing it unfavorably to Arkham Knight in terms of performance, in terms of visuals, in terms of combat, in terms of a lot of things. It's like, that seven-year-old game is just better quality than this brand spanking new one. Uh, the story itself about Batman being dead and his handful of vigilante protégés working together to save Gotham City from the Court of Owls got kind of a mixed reaction, some saying it was the thing that kept them engaged amid very disappointing gameplay. Others criticized it, not so much the story itself as how it was told. A big problem, apparently, is the ebb and flow of plot progression it is a little bit herky-jerky thanks to the new game's uh, focus on grinding through fight encounters to get to the next development. And mainly, the chief problem plot-wise being that Batman's shadow hangs heavily over the entire thing, everyone constantly talking about him and never really taking over as a full-fledged protagonist or group of protagonists until way too late in the game. Um, the big issues with Gotham Knights, though, from the sounds of it, are not so much the plot as the gameplay. The gameplay has deviated so far from the detective puzzle-solving stuff, the Metroidvania kind of backtracking through the map with newly acquired gadget stuff, the healthy mixture of beat-em-up and platforming, and all, all the great stuff we loved about those rock-steady Batman games. Uh, it's deviated so far from that. Uh, because the game is now way too focused on just rote combat and a kind of half-assed RPG upgrade system. And mostly just the word I keep seeing in all these reviews, grind. Grind, 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 and the mechanics. Somebody said the combat system is paper thin to kind of accommodate the fact that four different characters, different styles, uh, have to work in the same spots, which make it feel kind of rote and uninteresting. There's a bunch of gear, and there's a bunch of options for ranged attacks and etc., but really the game doesn't encourage their use so much as focuses on endless melee tied to one button. That's kind of the way you beat the game, and the result is a game with a lot of flavor and player choice that would have probably been totally fine, like a solid B- or a C+, but it's deemed very lackluster because the core combat fails to live up to the classy old Rocksteady system that everybody loved so much that it became such a sensation. And that's not even going into the technical issues with the game. I, I guess being uh, being such a massive outdoor map that Gotham City is in this game with all of the uh, multi-level stuff, it's very vertically based uh, map, uh, it's causing tons of frame drops and crashes, which, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a modern AAA game, so it wouldn't be a complete experience if it wasn't released... Just like a week or two early before things like that could be patched and fixed, I really wonder at what point they're going to start charging us money for those day one or week one patches that fix basic shit like that. It's coming, I swear to God. The next 10, 15 years of video games, faster than you might think, my friends, it's coming where they're going to charge you money to get the version of the game that works. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, that, that sucks. Uh, I wasn't going to be able to play the game anytime soon, but I'm sad to hear that, you know, even if I was able to, one of my favorite franchises for the last 10 or 15 years has fallen victim to, well, I, 
I talked about this weeks and weeks ago when we first got gameplay footage of Gotham Knights, but it sounds a lot like the Batman Arkham franchise has dissolved into something that looks a lot more like uh, Marvel's The Avengers. It's... what a pity. What a pity it is to hear. I'm sad. But you know what else is a pity for me? The fact that my, my favorite, my favorite ever, the Star Wars franchise, has kind of abandoned feature films. Yeah, we we've pivoted into movies now, folks. Keep up, keep up. That was a that was a dynamite segue, <laughs> and, and me acknowledging it makes it all the better, doesn't it? Yes, uh, we're talking movies now, and Star Wars has been kind of uh, they've been killing it in television lately, but the Star Wars movie franchise has been really MIA. It's kind of frustrating i mean andor is still airing right now by far it's the best star wars property since disney took over i think i actually i love force awakens i love the last jedi one of my favorites now i'm not nearly as hard on rise of skywalker as i should be either i have a bias that was the first star wars i watched in theaters where my son was on one side of me my father was on the other side of me so it's a happy magical memory for me but I've gone back and the movie is a real big mess. It's really, really hard to sit through. Uh, I enjoyed Rogue One and I really liked Solo. I was hoping we could get more Star Wars movies that play in the space, but with different tones and genres like that. I really wanted that Boba Fett movie from James Mangold, uh, director of 310 to Yuma, Logan. He's now going to be the director of Indiana Jones 5. I think that's kind of the consolation prize for his Star Wars falling apart. But he would have made such a great space western starring Boba Fett as, like, the man with no face instead of the man with no name. Uh, I wanted a Friday the 13th-style slasher movie, but it's Darth Vader taking out a group of Jedi teenagers one by one. Do something fun like that. Change it up. Play in the space. That's why I liked Solo. Because... All Solo was, to me, was a Fast and the Furious heist movie set in Star Wars. And I think everybody would have liked it a whole lot better, it's just most folks couldn't get past the fact that it starred Han Solo, and it wasn't Harrison Ford, and most of the movie had to keep tapping you on the shoulder going, Do you like Han Solo? This is Han Solo. Do you like Han Solo? Do you want to know how he got the name Solo? You want to know how he got his, his gun? You like his gun? That's a great gun, isn't it? You want to know how he got that gun? You want to, you want to know how he met Chewie? You want to see how he met Chewie? You want to hear him talk to Chewie? You want, you want to see you want to see him shower with Chewie? You want, you, want to see, you want to see how he got the Falcon? You want to see that card game where he won the Falcon? You want, you want to see him talk to Lando? It easily could have just been a young Lando movie instead of Han. And it probably would have been beloved if it was, honestly, because Donald Glover as Lando was such good casting that everybody looked past the fact that that's also a beloved character. He just, he nailed that so well. I honestly think uh, Alden Ehrenreich did great as a young Han Solo, but he was never going to win because fans were just so pissy about it from moment one. But if you take out all of the, this is how he got his name, his ship, his gun nonsense, that's the problem with Star Wars is the constant reverence factor for the original stuff, the callbacks, the Easter eggs. And that's why Andor is so great, because it has almost none of that. And it's really approaching the Empire and the Rebellion from like a season one Game of Thrones perspective, where you aren't quite sure why you're following the plots of these different people 
in like you know uh, uh in the imperial security bureau and and the one wiener guy from the corporate police department but you can easily see how down the line three seasons from now events might change their allegiances and change their minds and make them more sympathetic you might even see them change sides or you might see yourself rooting for them it's a magical thing that television can accomplish movies can't but anyway i'm digging andor i liked obi-wan kenobi the show i like the character too but i like the show there's no movies anymore there's no star wars movies anymore uh patty jenkins had a rogue squadron movie in development that was supposed to be top gun in star wars man which sounds fun to me but that recently got removed from disney's release schedule which ouch that probably means it's deader than greedo right that i mean when you have no movies on your release schedule named star wars to remove the one that you do have that's bad that means that movie is probably dead uh i know folks don't like patty jenkins anymore because wonder woman 1984 was strange and messy and looked kind of crappy and it just really wasn't a it wasn't great it i don't think it was that bad but i don't think it was that great and it had a couple of fatal flaws to it uh but i would watch a patty jenkins star war i would watch that movie i would probably enjoy that movie for that matter ryan johnson had a trilogy of star wars movies that he was developing and then we never heard about that again you know because because he shat on our childhoods which ironically makes him the perfect man to make Star Wars, because that's what everybody was talking about George Lucas only 10, 15 years ago, is that he shat on our childhoods. Uh, but just this last week, in revving up for The Glass Onion, his Knives Out sequel coming next month, he said that he still had that Star Wars trilogy. It's not dead. It's just kind of up in the air, and he had other stuff that he wanted to work on first, and Lucasfilm can't really get their shit together as to what they want Star Wars to be. So it's just kind of been up in the air. And ditto for Taika Waititi's Star Wars movie. At this point, that's like the most solid and substantial project on the slate in terms of feature films bearing the name Star Wars, but we still know nothing about it. Anyway, no real solid developments on Star Wars as a movie franchise. All their upcoming projects with names, plots, casts, etc. are all TV shows for Disney+. But, uh... Why do I why do I say all of that in the movie section of the podcast? It's because this last week we got news via deadline. Damon Lindelof has signed on to co-write and produce a Star Wars movie. Uh, an honest-to-goodness theatrical exhibition of something called Star Wars. That's surprising. That's surprising because Lindelof is mostly a TV guy at this point. Uh, not just because he was really most of the creative force behind Lost back in the day, but even uh, more recently, he's also done some fantastic work on television. My favorite TV show of 2019 was HBO's Watchmen, which was his baby. Uh, he also uh, created The Leftovers, also HBO. Uh, it was heaped with praise. Very, very cool show from what I heard. I didn't catch it, but I heard good things. Lindelof got a real bum rap in the world of movies, thanks to Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, the backlash against that movie. I gotta say, I've gone back to the Kelvin Star Trek trilogy, I guess we have to officially call it a trilogy, since there's no way in hell I'm allowed to get another one of those. The, the forces of darkness have conspired to make sure I won't. 
But Into Darkness is definitely the worst of the three, I'll admit. But I don't think I'd go so far as to say it's a bad movie. It's it's messy. It's got a lot of plot issues. It's got problems. It's it's bogged down by J.J. Abrams trying to keep that con reveal in his pocket for far too long. It's essentially the rise of Skywalker of that series. You know, there's a bunch of ideas floating around, but no unifying concept or premise to tie them all together. No reason for a lot of the things in that movie to be in that movie. But Lindelof, I think, has learned a lot since the days of Lost, as far as locking in, like, a beginning, middle, and ending to a story, tying them together with recurring themes. If you watched uh, Watchmen, you can see how he'd be very good at threading the needle on that problem with with Star Wars. The callbacks, the Easter eggs, like it or not, and I personally don't, but that very large voice of toxic fandom that Star Wars is the main poster child for, those people are not going to be happy with anything, anything bearing the name Star Wars, unless it constantly reminds them of what they like Star Wars, what they like about Star Wars, you know, at all, in the form of little things that only true fans can catch, you know? Uh, Watchmen does that splendidly. Every scene has something that you can pick up on that, that links back to the Alan Moore comics, but, 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 that's a heavy butt. At no point does the show grind to a halt so that a side character you recognize can step into frame and say hello for no reason. At no point does Watchmen wink at the camera and deliver some piece of candy for people who want to prove that they're true fans because they understood that reference. As a matter of fact, you could probably watch the Watchmen TV show having never read the original comics or watch the movie adaptation, and you'd probably be fine. You could follow along. You wouldn't get as much out of it, probably, but, I mean, you'd also need, like, the occasional glance at Wikipedia, I imagine, but my point is, it's a hard tightrope to walk with Star Wars. Kathleen Kennedy, for better or worse, I say worse, has decided that she does need to at least be listening to the aggressive fanbase who think they have just as much right to shape Star Wars as she does. After that one-two punch of The Last Jedi backlash and then Solo kind of becoming a joke, not making enough at the box office. I don't think it bombed nearly as bad as its reputation is. I think that it didn't make enough money because most of its budget had to go to reshooting the whole movie, or did it really need to? That's a subject for another time. I think it's fair to say from my outside-looking-in perspective that Kathleen Kennedy and her Disney overlords, they became very gun-shy about how to handle the fan beast that Star Wars has. It's bigger than even the Marvel fan base. And that's why we haven't had a solid movie development in four years for this multi-billion dollar franchise. But Lindelof, I think he could potentially thread that needle in writing that screenplay. Now, he's not directing the movie. That, that's very important to remember. He is not going to be the one directing it. They've signed on a director, though, and it's also a quite surprising choice. Charmaine Obaid Chinoy. Uh who is best known for her career as a journalist and documentarian, she did direct two episodes of Ms. Marvel for Disney+, and she signed on to direct this big Star Wars movie. I'm assuming big. I haven't heard of a small Star Wars movie as of yet. Now, if you listen to the show regularly, you know my feelings on this kind of hire. The, The classic hiring of someone who's never directed something this big 
this corporately controlled, this fan-obsessed, this complicated before. I hate, 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 hate it when the studios hire someone at this level for something as big as this because I have my suspicions as to why they went with her. I like Ms. Marvel a whole lot. Uh, her two episodes were, in my opinion, the more visually distinctive of the series. You might have guessed her two episodes were the two that take place in Karachi. Uh, Obaid Chinoy is, I believe, uh, Pakistani-Canadian. So they brought her in likely because her style of visuals would better showcase Karachi or, you know, rather showcase uh, Thailand standing in for Karachi. But it makes sense that they would hire her for the two episodes of Ms. Marvel that take place in Karachi. Uh, on this, though, I'm not really sold on this movie and it being a Star Wars movie in early development. I'm not sure if we'll ever see it happen, honestly. It sounds almost like a placeholder uh, with with those two people attached to it. It sounds almost like... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing about its release date long before we hear about a story, a cast, anything solid that actually costs money. But it's a great way to hold on to a, a, a slot on their release schedule. I can only assume, because Lucasfilm has decided to plant their flag in the immediate post-Empire era, on television at least, the half dozen years after Return of the Jedi, I mean, this might be the first movie that takes place in that era. I think it's safe to say we aren't going to go back to the First Order era anytime soon because of the fear of the fan backlash on that sequel trilogy. We are getting a series set in the High Republic era, and of course uh, that magical 20 years of canon timeline in between the prequels and the original trilogy. <laughs> that 20 years will last forever in animated form at least. Uh... But anyway, I assume if Marvel is any indicator, if they want to connect the movies with the TV shows in order to get the audience biting at both sides of the apple, out at the cinema and on their couches at home, we're probably talking about a movie that takes place in the immediate post-galactic Civil War era. That's my theory. Something that could be, something they could cheekily hint at in the next season of Mandalorian, you know? That's what Star Wars is still missing that Marvel has been able to pull off, and I think definitely the people at Disney would sure like it if Star Wars was kicking out this same amount of content as Marvel. That was a lot of Star Wars talk, and that's a risk you have to take while listening to my podcast, so I'm not sorry. <laughs> but we have other movies in development that made some waves. Here's a quick one that's quite puzzling. In the realm of 1990s blockbusters that would make for profitable IP now, in this foul year of 2022, did you expect a sequel to Twister? Because I don't think anybody did. Uh, Spielberg and Amblin announced back in 2020 that they were angling for a full reboot of 1996's Twister, that surprise uh, weather blockbuster. <laughs> and I, I must not have seen that news item back in 2020. Perhaps I was busy with... All the other news happening in 2020. Admittedly, it was a year that... 2020 was a year that seemed to contain about five years worth of news in one. But I totally missed this back then. Apparently, they, they went back to the drawing board because there was a lot of backlash about it not having any connective tissue to the original. That's what they said. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that anyone actually cared about Twister that much. I think it's more like... 
Sorry, sir, our brand research shows that requels and legacyquels, whichever you want to call them, with original cast members passing the torch to younger cast, those do much better at the box office than hard resets with entirely new plots and characters. So they got to work on a legacy sequel. That's what they're doing. And this week we got some more news on it. First off, the title is Twisters, with an S at the end, <laughs> presumably uh, with that S turned into a dollar sign, like James Cameron's famous uh, pitch for Aliens, which I'm pretty sure is just an apocryphal story more than anything. It might not have even happened that way. But um, kind of sad news. Helen Hunt has reportedly passed on being in it as uh, Joe. And of course, you know, we all knew we would be without the late, great Bill Paxton or the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right there, don't you just not really even care? Like, you don't get Paxton, you don't get Philip Seymour Hoffman, you don't get Helen Hunt. That leaves, you know, Joey Slotnick and Alan Ruck. Because those guys will draw a crowd. <laughs> I love Alan Ruck, and I love Joey Slotnick, but those guys aren't, you know, they're not Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> they're not Harrison Ford. Um... I cannot really handle how cynical and ridiculous all of this sounds, you know? Uh, it's going to be about Joe's daughter grappling with the family legacy of ch chasing tornadoes. That's what it is. It's going to be that. Anybody could have guessed that's what they were going with. It's the most, like, nakedly cynical way that you could go about making a sequel to Twister at this point without any of the original cast's bigger stars to me, it just sounds like a joke cut from Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. That's what it sounds like to me. My immediate joke to a Twitter friend was, I was wondering how much money will they offer Cooper Hoffman to appear as Dusty Jr. in this? And will it involve a digitally resurrected Philip Seymour Hoffman talking to him in a dream sequence or some bullshit like that? That was met with the social media equivalent of a shudder from a few people. Um, <laughs> why... Why does it always have to be about the main character's kids? Why? And why this movie? Why now? The majority of film Twitter's jokes about this uh, news revolved around what an unqualified success Independence Day resurgence was a couple of years ago. You remember that one? Apparently the studios didn't. Uh, I don't love Twister by any means. But didn't we say all that we needed to say with the first movie? Should we tread on that IP just in the name of a couple of bucks? Must we go into the generational trauma of tornadoes? We could simply not. We could not. Or at very least, you know how you do this? You know how you do twisters? Don't try to make it a thing. Don't try to make it a big event movie. Just, if you want to make a twisters, do it with Netflix. Do it with Hulu. Just Drop, drop it on a streaming service, it'll probably do gangbusters. Remember how good Prey did just a couple of months ago? I bet Twisters would do amazing if you put it on, you know, Peacock. I'll bet it would do great numbers on Peacock. Anyway, I talk about Peacock a lot on this podcast all of a sudden. Uh, I've mentioned it a lot in the last couple of weeks, like, like it's a platform that I use more often than I really do. Uh, it's just a bad name for a platform too. Not that I want it to be called like, what do you call that? NBC Universal Television Plus, but Peacock. Peacock. I don't know. Anyway, talking about trauma, another big movie announcement is that the Conjuring universe, 
the most unlikely of cinematic universes, is getting another main entry. The Conjuring 4 is coming at ya. From David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Whew, what a name that is. Uh, if you don't recognize that very long name, he is the screenwriter of the very troubled Aquaman 2, or rather it's called Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. He wrote that one, and I guess James Wan likes his work, likes the cut of his jib, because he's on script duty for the next paranormal adventure for Ed and Lorraine Warren. He's also the writer of the original Orphan 2009, which got a pretty well-received sequel this year. Uh, he also did drafts on the first Aquaman, as well as the equally troubled Flash movie. Sounds like this guy's just a really solid name for franchise material, honestly. This'll be uh, the next movie in the Conjuring universe, after The Nun 2 finishes production in France, which is happening right now. Man, The Nun 2. How about that, folks? Did you ever think we'd be looking at The Nun 2 or Conjuring 4? I really liked that first Conjuring movie. I never went back for another bite after that. I haven't seen any of the other ones. I heard 2 was pretty good, but... What was really special about that one, and I gather what people like about the franchise, was how the ghost hunting couple, their marriage, their kids, their relationships to each other, all of that was given as much focus as the fairly basic exorcism haunted house plot. I imagine people keep coming back for these because it's rare in this subgenre, the, you know, kind of quasi-religious haunting type of horror movie. It's very rare for out-and-out -out heroic protagonists to carry on throughout the series like this. The Warrens are the horror equivalent of superheroes at this point, right? And Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, they do good work as these characters. It's, it's admirable that they keep coming back to play these, and it's just so damn funny. It's just so damn funny to me that the most solid current-day horror franchise is based on such selfless, heroic characters who are based on the most slimy of real-world snake oil merchants. <laughs> the real Warrens have been known to be charlatans and hucksters since before the franchise even began, but that can't stop their fictional counterparts from racking up the box office victories every single time over the forces of evil. It's, yeah, it's fun. I like that. I find it fun. Uh, last item in movies, and this just happened as I was recording today, Henry Cavill has made it official in a social media post that he is returning as Superman. That's kind of a biggie, honestly. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, who I feel we really should just drop the rock from his name at this point, uh, when you can be named Dwayne Johnson and everyone instantly knows what you look like, what you sound like, can name three franchises that you've saved, you really don't need your alias anymore, I think. But anyway, Dwayne Johnson has been on a media blitz uh, in the run-up to the release of Black Adam, which came out this last week. A movie that Warner Brothers sure seems to be a little sweaty about. Uh, I get that feeling. I get that feeling that they worry that mainstream audiences will not really come out for it because they don't know who the hell Black Adam is or what his deal is. I mean, if, the, if it's any indicator, my kids saw the trailer for it ahead of Jurassic World 3, I think. And they were mostly like, eh. My kids bizarrely latched onto Shazam, by the way. Because that movie's fun, and it's kid-oriented, and it has a very entry-level approach to the Shazam corner of the comic book landscape. And, you know, it's easy to get into, and it's easy to have fun with, but they really didn't latch onto that Black Adam trailer at all, because it seems terribly, terribly earnest. Very, very uh, serious about itself. And Johnson has been seeming very serious about it, too. He spent the entire press tour for this movie trying to do his thing that 
he did as a wrestler, basically. He's trying to get everyone hyped for a possible Donnybrook between Black Adam and Superman, and reportedly, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but apparently the movie hints at that as well. Which, that begs the question from everybody, uh, do you mean Henry Cavill's Superman? Because it's not super clear if he's coming back for any more DC stuff. Uh, I think we, we have a better idea about Ben Affleck's future as Batman than we did about Henry Cavill's Superman until today. Uh, for the last few years, it seemed like DC and Warner Brothers were, they were really going to use the timeline-bending aspects of Flashpoint as a pivot point to pave over any messy recastings or just omissions of characters that keep preventing their connected cinematic universe from finding its final shape. And then their Flash actor put a really big kibosh on that movie being a linchpin for anything, except for maybe a plea bargain. So now it seems like they want Black Adam to play that role of a pivot point, and the order of the day now, I guess, is that Black Adam and Superman are being nudged into position to be the next, like, Godzilla versus Kong. Considering how well that worked when one of the big fighters was Batman, I'd say it's kind of a muddled idea. Batman v Superman was... I mean, even if it actually followed through with the premise of its title, Batman fighting Superman through a whole movie, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if Black Adam versus Superman's gonna do any better. But anyway, Henry Cavill's coming back, and apparently there's now an active mission to pen a direct sequel to Man of Steel, like a standalone Superman movie. That's so weird, because there was a sequel to Man of Steel being developed, and I thought... Guillermo del Toro was involved at one point, but basically the Snyderverse was the direction they went with, so yay, question mark? We we do get Man of Steel 2, finally, about ten years later than we should have. I like Henry Cavill. I like him as Superman, even. Uh, it's funny to me that everything he's been in since becoming Superman, he's really good. Like, Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible 6, The Witcher... Even those Enola Holmes movies on Netflix, the ones where he's Sherlock Holmes and Millie Bobby Brown is like his teenage sister. It's a weird concept, but he's pretty fun in those. Superman has been the role where we haven't seen enough of his talents come out. We've seen his physique, and it's splendid. Uh, fantastic look. He looks like Superman, but a standalone Superman sequel where he's in the suit and he's Superman and the world knows him as Superman from moment one and he's allowed to maybe smile and be happy? Hey, that sounds like it could work to me. That sounds like a movie I'd want to see even. They certainly haven't tried it yet since casting him. So, hey, cheers to Black Adam for at least giving us Henry Cavill as Superman, giving Henry Cavill one more go at the very least, maybe with a writer and director who's actually interested in in Superman as a character instead of what Superman represents as a kind of votive statue dedicated to the burden of exceptionalism or whatever the hell those movies are going for. If you like the Snyderverse, fine. I, I don't begrudge you that. I don't get it. I really don't. Um, okay, let's leave movies alone for a while so some of them might hopefully get fully baked and actually come out of the oven instead of just dying on the vine. And now I'm mixing food metaphors. So, we better get moving into comics. Do you like comic books? Because uh, I've got a couple of little things for you if you do. Uh, Todd McFarlane revealed the other day via comicbook.com the cover image for a new Batman Spawn one-shot. The DC uh, flagship character and McFarlane's Image Comics uh, original 
those guys have hung out before, uh, once in a story McFarlane collaborated on with Frank Miller, uh, but this time McFarlane will write, and the issue will be inked by, uh, no, it'll be penciled, rather, by Greg Capullo, who has worked on both characters in the past. He had a long run on Spawn back in the day. He was famously the Batman artist for the New 52 era, the Scott Snyder stories. Uh, I love Capullo's Batman. He draws him as just a big old slab of beef. Capullo himself is like a really big bodybuilder. He's got big honking arms, if you've ever seen him. And I think he really puts his take of Batman into the realm of like a guy who works out obsessively. Like late at night, he's just he's just just pushing Chrome up and down. And that tracks. For me, that tracks. That makes sense as a, as a Batman attribute. Uh, me, personally, I'm not a huge Spawn fan, but I get it. I totally get why it worked for so many readers back in the good old days when people were looking for something a little darker in comics. But I never got super into it. The, the combination of Batman and Spawn is an interesting one, I think, though. Not just plot-wise, with... Like, one guy being all justice and vengeance, and the other being about, like, rage and revenge. That's fun, but also it's kind of an aesthetic thing that makes sense to me. Batman lives in a lot of desaturated black and gray. Spawn is a very insanely colorful character. And world, uh, lots of extreme contrast. So I get it, I think. I think I get it. Uh, the one shot of Batman Spawn will release December 13th. But while you're waiting for that, you can also snag Batman Spawn War Devil. That's a miniseries that starred both characters back in 1994, which they're going to re-release on November 15th. So that'll whet your appetite a touch. Um, another bit of news in the comic book world, which of course has to splash around in the comic book superhero movie world. Uh, a comic book writer and artist named Christopher Wozniak is suing Warner Brothers for copyright infringement over the Batman, the, the Robert Pattinson Batman movie from this year. Uh, his suit states that the plot of the movie has entire scenes copied wholesale from a story he pitched to DC three times and shared with a movie executive for WB. Uh, Wozniak is he's not just some schmo off the street. He is an industry professional. He had a lot of credits for DC mostly in the early to mid-90s as a penciler and cover artist. Uh, some stuff for Marvel, too. Older stuff, like uh, Excalibur, uh, Marvel 2099. So really, I think he, he did a lot of his output for the big two uh, back then. He hasn't been active for those companies in quite a while, but he claims that the basic plot of the Matt Reeves movie, namely a lot of the Riddler-related stuff, comes from a story he wrote as far back as 1990. Now, this story came to me from the New York Post, which eh, their coverage of it is, let's say, sensationalist at best. But when offering specific examples of infringement, the suit cites things like the spoilers for the Batman, I guess. But the scene where Alfred is uh, firebombed by the Riddler, by a Riddler package, and Batman finds out over the phone, but way too late to stop it, which... I mean, okay, I guess. Another example that they used in the suit is how all the riddles combine into a cipher, wherein the Riddler reveals that he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. That's something that happens in the guy's story, Wozniak's story. Uh, stop the podcast for stop the podcast for a second. Uh, I've only watched the movie about four times at this point because I really like it. 
but I'm fairly certain the Riddler, in fact, does not know that Bruce Wayne is Batman in the movie, and the cipher does not reveal that at all. I mean, look, you can claim something in the movie happened when it didn't. That's not great for your, uh, your lawsuit, bucko. In that example, if the point of it is that all the riddles added up to a big reveal, well, okay, fine, but that happens a lot in the comic books. It happens a lot in other movies. Where was the lawsuit in 1995 when Jim Carrey's riddles all added up to M-R-E, Mr. E, Mystery. Another name for a mystery is Enigma. E-Nigma. Edward Nigma. <laughs> I know I know that movie isn't loved these days, but I'll always love that moment because it's so close to the Adam West Batman solving riddles out loud with wild leaps and reasoning. That's so great. I love it. It's so perky. I love that. Anyway, I'm pretty sure this guy doesn't have much of a case if those are his big gotcha moments. But hey, on the other hand, the dark side of the superhero movie craze is that a lot of comic book creators get absolutely shafted in being compensated for their story beats, their costume designs, their series arcs, those arcs as titles. It's not outside the realm of possibility to me that this guy's unpublished story centered on the Riddler might have influenced the script of this movie, and if that's the case, it's certainly up for debate whether he deserves a bit of that box office scratch in return. But regardless, he's seeking a jury trial and hefty compensation and Warner Brothers is giving a big fat no comment, as per usual. I don't know a lot about the law, in general, but I sure feel like this is a situation where undisclosed financial settlement plays a big role. In your opinion, dear listener, if WB gave this guy Wozniak a chunk of change to shut up, does that say to you that he's partially right, at least partially, that they cribbed a bit from his story that DC... By the way, a story that DC wouldn't go forward with publishing as a comic book for 30 years after three attempts, but they would certainly steal from it in order to make a big blockbuster movie? Or does it more likely say that it's probably cheaper for them to pay him off than it is to weather the storm of this story playing out any further? And does he really believe that he's been stolen from, or does do he and his attorneys just count on WB shelling out to make him go away? Is it any of our business? Well, arguably no, but Wozniak did kind of make it our business by making it as public as he possibly could. The guy's Twitter account is at BatmanGate, in case you were wondering, so he would sure like it to be our business and to be as public as possible. Alright, that's enough of that. Let's talk TV, you turkeys. Not a ton of TV stuff. Uh, House of the Dragon finale was the other night. I just plain skipped a whole season of television right there. Not a very good steward of pop culture of me. Uh, apparently a ton of people are watching this one, but it's not lighting up social media the way the original show did, not by my estimate. But apparently there's a lot of thirst online for a couple of those darn Targaryens. <laughs> those darn Targaryens, that's definitely what I would title this show if it were a silent movie in the 20s. Uh, but I find the thirst for the Targaryens the same as I do for the thirst for the British royal family in real life. Why? What makes them attractive to you? Uh, wh why them? Uh, it's, they seem weird, they seem out of touch with the rest of the world, and a bit inbred, possibly. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of similarities between the two families. But uh, that was a big TV moment in the last couple of days. No spoilers, but something big in the world of George R.R. R. Martin's books, namely Fire and Blood, 
some big event was depicted in the finale as de- as befitting a finale episode. So anyway, season two, definitely a go. Pretty sure it was before the first episode even aired. And now there's something to do in season two. We've got war. War were declared. So if you're enjoying that one, awesome. I wish you well. I'm just about ready to give Rings of Power a try, finally, and I think that I might just leave this one on the back burner for a bit. But hey, ask me again next year when Season 2 anticipation revs up. I might jump in on that on that point. Uh, certainly I will have something to watch come summer of 2023, because HBO did release a teaser for the next season of Succession. I'm all in on that show. I absolutely adore watching rich, stupid people do badly. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of therapeutic to watch rich people, even fictional rich people, step in it all the time. And uh, that show has just been getting better and better, so definitely all in on that one. Um, didn't have a lot to talk about with that, but it was worth noting. Another TV news item uh, that happened in the last week, so I should probably talk about it. Trevor Noah announced he's leaving The Daily Show marking an end to seven years of him hosting and at least five years of me totally forgetting The Daily Show is still on the air. Um, I I don't dislike Trevor Noah at all. As a matter of fact, I'm glad that he's leaving the show because the first thing he did was publicly sign a deal with Netflix for a couple of stand-up specials. I think he's a much better stand-up than he is a talk show host. What I like about Trevor Noah was his ability to stay on a difficult interviewee and make sure that they didn't dodge or dance away from hard questions, particularly those about race and inequality and whatnot. What I didn't like about Trevor Noah in the chair for The Daily Show was how his version of the show shifted away from comedy so hard and more towards earnest like commentary, which feels weird on Comedy Central. Uh, he, he has... He has a writer's room, but they don't seem to write as many jokes as the show used to have. Uh, he's a little earnest for me as as the face of the show, and sometimes between that and the writing getting a little more serious-minded, it can come off as sanctimony. Sometimes it really clashes when the comedy fangs do come out, and then you're sitting there going, wait, hold on, hold on. This is the guy who likes to take the time to have considered nuanced monologues about how Americans seek to other each other and make each other feel lesser than, and how that's wrong. And then he just hauls off and does an Apu accent and make a 9-11 joke about Saudi Arabia, and that's weird. I don't know. I wish him well. I, I'll i totally check out his specials on Netflix. Uh, he has one dropping in November ahead of his departure. Uh, I, I think it's called I Wish You Would. Uh, But of all the names being tossed around to replace him in the chair, the most consistent would be Roy Wood Jr. Uh, He's been a correspondent on the show since Noah's first episode, and he's also having a bit of a moment in his career of late. If any of you haven't seen Confess Fletch yet, Roy Wood Jr.'s wonderful in it. He's playing the character of the police inspector, so beautifully against type, because he's following John Hamm around looking to solve the mystery, and... John Hamm's playing, you know, such this big comedic character. Roy Wood Jr.'s not really playing the straight man, but he's playing kind of a no-nonsense guy, which is funny coming out of him. But I think it would be the smartest move on Comedy Central's part to pursue Wood for the, for the part, for the for the job. He said himself on a podcast recently, because 
because he has that pre-existing relationship with the audience, the transition would be a lot smoother than the one where Jon Stewart left and Noah came in. And I agree with that. I think that that's 100% why they'd be stupid not to try to bring an existing contributor to the desk. And honestly, I think Wood would be a great fit as the host. I think he'd do a great job of giving the show a new voice and getting a better mixture of comedy and truth blended into the news items being whipped at us. I would probably watch a Roy, a Roy Wood Jr. daily show way more regularly than I ever did the Trevor Noah version because it would feel a little less exhausting. It would be a little more effortless. I feel it would be a little it would feel a lot less like a spoonful of vegetables, if you will. And I do hate that phrase. I hate I hate the idea that serious news or, you know, topics of of the day in the world are somehow like the medicine we have to take in between our entertainment. I don't agree with that, but anyway, that's all the stuff I have for you this week. Thank you for tuning in and hanging out as always, and don't forget to send news tips or items of discussion to mediasandwichshow at gmail.com or on Twitter at media underscore sandwich. And please, please, please subscribe to the show in your podcatcher of choice. Leave me a little review if you'd be so kind. I want to know how I'm doing. And please check me out on Letterboxd. Uh, check out mediasandwich.com, media-sandwich.com, that is, for some reviews and further comic book discussions and whatnot. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, baby. Uh, I think it's from a Goofy movie. Did I just quote a Goofy movie? I'm in a real mid-90s uh, place right now because of all this news but anyway while i'm here in the mid 90s and until next week i'm kyle martinak and i'm gonna go get a sandwich